welcome to the very 164th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast all about board games, board games, and the people who love board games. 164! Let's, let's, yeah. My name is Matt Lees, today joined by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees! Hello, Quentin Smith. People on Reddit were saying, why haven't Quinn's and Matt been on a podcast at the same time for ages? And the truth of the matter is, as people quickly worked out, is because they both have lots of quite busy, important things to do, and it's far <laughs> easier to just have one of them on and not the other one at the same time. Anyway, we're here now. It's happening. It's, it's happening. Happen- and we've got three games that we're going to talk about. I feel... I feel uh, oh, my God. Okay, this is, see, this is the real reason we can't you know, be on a podcast together, is we've totally lost the ability to take turns speaking. Yeah, we talk but, at exactly the same time. The, it, Never mind. But... Ah, <laughs> right. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Okay. Well, I, I I had a crap. You didn't have anything. To, yeah, no, okay. I didn't have oh. anything to to add. I I had a crap joke <laughs> about being like to all the people listening, hello, and to all the board games listening, special hello to you. And then we could have riffed on the fact that board games can't really listen to podcasts. Well, only because they haven't got. Um, they're usually the boxes are too big to comfortably fit headphones over. Um. I think small small board games probably could if you put some headphones around a, a small board game. Um, okay. Or like put a pair actually, of earbuds uh, so they go inside the box and then just pump the sound waves around inside yeah, the box. Yeah. I guess as soon as you get inside the box, it gets more complicated because then it's like you're actually like trying to get the components to listen to it individually. There's a kind of real classification there. It's It's one of the difficulties that you face when you start to actually consider nonsense. Uh, so we'll probably just move on from this. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about Brick and Mortar, an interesting mechanical game of running shops, trying to make money and having a mechanically quite hellish time. We're going to be talking about Rush Out, a game in which four animals are trying to escape from a dungeon while a wizard uh, tries to stop them all via the medium of fast dice rolling. And we're going to be talking about Furnace, a game of bidding for factories and properties and then running them like some horrible big machine and being an industrial person in a top hat making loads of money. But it comes in a relatively small box with relatively few rules and components. And crucially, it's not a game that takes up an entire afternoon. You can actually play it in about 40 minutes, an hour tops, which is a bit of a treat for that kind of thing. I've got a unifying theme across all three of those games, Brick and Mortar, Rush Out, and Furnace. All three are much more fun than you expect, or we expect, mm. being cynical people who judge games the moment we see them, even at a distance of like <laughs> 10 feet. I don't know if I agree with that. I think, I think Brick and Mortar was less fun than I was expecting. But that was only because it was very mean, uh, and it and it didn't look mean. So maybe we should we should bang in a little sting, and you can intro the first game. I was going to say, have we bypassed the sting? Have we? No. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it on the horizon. It's getting closer. It's about three seconds away. There you go. <laughs> okay. So Brick and Mortar is designed by Nicholas J. McCollum. It's a new release and it's the first published game by Octoraf Games. Now, Octoraf Games, new publisher. They have a logo of a giraffe that, I don't know if you noticed this, Matt, is being gripped by an octopus tentacle and the giraffe just looks really upset about the whole situation, which is maybe your first Crikey. and only hint that playing Brick and Mortar is going to have a few painful surprises uh, when you start. 
Um, so this is a game that looks small and gentle from the outside. Um, it's called Brick and Mortar. The cover shows like a, maybe a little a little high street of shops. Um, and the whole thing has very unintimidating and pleasant artwork by one Tristram Rossin. And the art of Brick and Mortar, I've not seen it in a board game before. It's the kind of art you might expect from a uh, corporate PowerPoint presentation, but like from a classy company with money to spend on their PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like, it's like a corporate animation, isn't it? It's like, it would be an animation about like being careful about not falling down the stairs in a workplace. <laughs> it's, it's very yes. anodyne, but in yes. quite, a, quite a pleasant way. It's like, it, it's, I've never seen so many illustrations of human beings and no sense of like humanity. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, it kind of, I, and I think I expected something softer from this game because of the fact that yeah it kind of has an aesthetic that's halfway between that and halfway between and this will sound mean but it's not intended to be mean at all but a kind of free-to-play mobile phone game yes kind of yes yes it looks like game like tiny towers yesterday. or something yeah yeah yes 100 um so let's get into what you're actually doing in this game and why it surprised at least me so much so this is a game about competing resale spaces um each player in the game is given a little personal player board that shows uh, a sort of street that's cut away so you can see inside uh, the shops um and you've got four slots every player has four slots so every player can have four shops um but at the start of the game you'll only have one uh, you're going to have a bad shop a bad starter shop at the start of the game so perhaps when your game of brick and mortar begins you've got a little grocer's that's bad and i've got a little woman who makes bad jewelry and our other friend has some discount electronic store with no shelf space because in the world of brick and mortar you there's all, so many shops in this game all individually illustrated all with their own powers and drawbacks and statistics but they all stock or sell um one of five different goods which is fo- food clothes electronics jewelry and art so it's kind of like a game based on the first unpublished bad draft of maslow's hierarchy of needs and this is all sounding like quite cute um, still, right? Um, because you've got a little shop with a little person in it. You've got a little pocket full of money. Um, when the game starts, everybody drafts some shops that only they will be able to build if they choose to. But also in the middle of the table, you've got even more shops, fancy shops. Um, and also some like auxiliary shops, like Matt owned a bank at one point. Also, some of the shops mm. are just like illegal. Like it might be a guy who sells discount jewelry. As you'd expect, the game is in sort of who can make the most money, although there's a weird victory point system. Um, so you think, well, you're going to get these shops, you're going to stock them with little cubes, you're going to sell little cubes representing clothes and food, you're going to make more money, you're going to open ma- more shops, and you're going to do all of this stuff. All of this is true, but what surprises you is just how blisteringly mean this game is at every point. And just before I throw over to Matt, I will say, Matt and I played this with Tom uh, from the site, and Matt, Tom had a first turn that was unexpectedly so much better than me and Matt's. It immediately mm. made me and Matt hyper competitive and angry for the entire game, which yeah. I, I was just blindsided by this. Well, we initially kind of started forging unofficial deals, really, just to just as a means of trying to survive. You know, I think it's the equivalent <laughs> of like, um, you know, like you you and somebody else run rival coffee shops in a nice little town and then suddenly yeah. a massive Starbucks appears in the middle and, and it's like you have to kind of put aside your differences and work out some form of temporary alliance yeah. just to survive because the nature of how this game works is that yes you're, you're you're buying stuff for your shops from the kind of the broader 
industrial market and selling it to consumers but the way this works in terms of the availability of stock and the demand from consumers is all determined by players having these hand of tiny cards that then get placed um sort of semi-secretly on the table everyone picks two or three as the game goes on and that defines the choices of things that are going to be available for people to collectively buy from the markets and also the things that consumers actually want and the difficulty about that is that even on a basis of what you are choosing for your contribution to the broader selection of things you've got a limited selection to choose from and so you might just have cards that are all kind of not what you need or not what you want and so you think god i really need to sell some electronics this round or my electronics are going to be devalued and slip down the shelves to the point of being absolutely worthless and disappearing from the game but i you know don't really have the capacity to make any more demand than maybe demand for two electronic items right i mean even just at its most basic and unpleasant you might say have a grocer's that stocks and sells food and you have in your hand of supply and demand cards only one card that has food icons so it's like yeah. do you play that as supply to make sure your grocer can even buy more food or do you play it as demand which might mean that you don't get to stock any food depending on what your friends have played and then <laughs> you're all competing for the same things right which means in the case of food this really frequently happened uh me and coins were both trying to produce food and sell food but then sometimes when there wasn't vast amounts of food available we were then having to basically bid to get the resources or sell the resources on a basic level and that became pretty brutal because suddenly if there's no other demand then you can just say hey i'm just going to buy all of this up at the cheapest price i'm going to sell it all at the highest price um but Usually, otherwise, you have to use these dials that actually starts to determine what you are willing to pay for these things or what you are willing to sell these things for. This would already be a mean game if it was like an open auction, like there were only four food cubes available and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll actually pay five for them and you went, oh, I'll pay six. Like that would be one thing, but it's a yeah. blind auction. So it's like, yeah. you have to second guess, like, well, how much do I think Matt is gonna, how, how like, will Matt really pay five? That seems crazy. He can only sell them for six. And then this system is exactly how you sell stuff as well. If there is more stock in people's shops than there is demand for those items, you again go back into the system of blindly bidding with a dial. So it's like, I'll sell my food for seven. Oh, well, actually, Matt's going to sell his food for six, which means Matt sells all of his food for almost no money, but you make even less money and now your but food is rotting. It's even worse than that because when you're selling <laughs> is stuff... It? Oh, I've, yeah. oh, I've forgotten. Well, when you're selling stuff, you have to choose like how low you're willing to sell those goods for to meet the demand, but also how many of those goods oh, you're going yeah. to sell at that price. And it means that if when it gets to you and somebody else says, oh, I'm going to sell mine for five and you say, I'm going to sell mine for six. And it's like, okay, well, you can sell yours for six after they've filled all the demand they want to as many as they can for that price. And then if there's you haven't got enough, you said you're going to sell three for five and there's only demand for one, then you sell that one food for five and then the other two just go into the bin. Yes, um, which <laughs> makes no sense, but is horrible. I mean, it, it might make sense in the idea of like pricing up food, but yeah, it's like, oh, well, no one bought my painting this round. I guess I'll put that in a dumpster. And then, you know, the I think the, the part where it, you know, 
because I said at the start of the podcast, I said that this was less fun than I was expecting. And that might sound mean, but again, it isn't. It's just that this isn't a fun game in a traditional, and oh, now I'm going to make some nice things and make some money and have a nice time. And at the end, we're going to count and see who won. It was just, it was cruel, but in a really interesting way. Oh, and I fact, have I have that written down. Yeah. It, uh, I literally, in my list of notes, I have, it's very cruel written down. <laughs> but it was so interesting in the fact that these... Even though, as we said, the art is strangely kind of not exactly flat, but it, it's sort of anodyne. I think you described it as earlier. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, but that allows it in the way that often many Euro games have this by not having too much strong theming and too much specific stuff. It allows for your imagination to fill in some of the gaps, and then I think it's fascinating in the fact that so many of these different shops you can buy the theming of them uh, in terms of the mechanics is really interesting and there's a really broad selection of things that are all like a bit rules heavy when you first look at them in terms of all the text on them but they always make sense in a way that thematically is really fun and allow you to build out this sense of like the businesses you're running you know in a in a in a fun sometimes horrible cynical way and there was a lot of very cynical stuff in this game in a way that i found quite delightful my favorite example of that is that i think there was a so the the guy who's just a criminal it's a jewelry shop you know mechanically but the art and the name of the card is you know like you know back alley jeweler and it's a guy with an open trench coat with some jewels. And the way it works is like that shop gets more jewels when it first opens, depending on how many other jewelry shops there are around the table. But once it makes, it, it can sell jewels for exactly one month. So it can hang around for a while. But the moment you sell anything, it immediately closes. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of want to ideally fill the shelves, sell everything really quickly and then close. Because as soon as you sell something, <laughs> you have to close, which is really fun. Only with that jewelry all... to clarify. Like all yeah. of the, there are like easily 50 or 60 shops in this game but all of them have a slight tweak on they, none of them work quite normally and that one was specifically designed to be something that when other people had opened jewelry shops you could then open up this dodgy jewelry shop like really easily um and just make a quick buck from that which i think like is both thematically really fun but also mechanically really nice in a game about these multiple these five different types of resources um or maybe it's in four i don't remember but five yeah having something where you can't build an engine that deals with everything that well but having the capacity to just be like actually they're making a ton of money on that i'm gonna jump in and cream a little bit out of it and then get out of it okay let me let me do my big note that i've got written down right and i think what really surprised me about this game is not just that it's demanding and dangerous and cruel but like it's demanding in different ways so so it expects you to do full-on calculations, like really sitting down and crunching like an accountant as to how much money you need. That's just for a start. Like, you need to think, oh, okay, I guess we have to talk about this now. So the game has a system where at the end of each round, basically, you have to decide how much of your cash you're converting into points. And initially, you know, it's something like $4 gets you a point, but then it gets less and less generous the more points you try and buy in one round. Which means to get the most points for your money, you want to be buying a small amount of points every round. But that means, like, one of the most important calculations of the game is how much money do you think you need next round to open your shops, to pay your utilities, which is a cruel thing that this game... And also to buy more stock. And also, what if there's not much stock? Maybe you need a little extra money to pay a little extra for that stock so you can undercut your opponents. So there's like accountancy you're doing in this game. But then also it's not a game of just like straight calculation and mathematics because like you say, Matt, you want to like try and skim cream off other people's like businesses. There's aggression, there's risk taking. You want to undercut people. You want to try and like surprise people by making sure there's too much demand or not enough. So it's mm. accountancy plus this kind of woolly cunning. 
And it's then, chaos accountancy, really, isn't chaos it? Chaos accountancy. And then, finally, the third thing it demands from you is it demands you have this kind of gamer's observation for combos. Because within all these, like, 50 or 60 different shops, um, we got burned almost immediately because Tom basically started the game with a combo of one shop, which let it, which was like a discount wholesaler, which meant if the three players couldn't afford to buy all the stock, he just got it. And then a second shop that meant he could just like ship these cubes overseas so that he didn't even need to have demand he could start yeah. selling stuff early and then those two buildings together almost lost you and me the entire game ultimately i think yeah you and I, I, lost I mean they we, did we, make, like, yeah. we, we did make mistakes as well like i think better players could have gotten out from under the rock that we were because uh, you you and i just took loans better players wouldn't have done the first round that we did i think Correct, that's what yeah. it came down to and i think that's the crucially like I think where I kind of landed on it overall does come down to that. It's a game that actually even talking about it now, it's like, it's really interesting. I would like quite like to play it again, but it is one of those deceptive games in the fact that it looks like it's just going to be a kind of fun mechanical selling stuff Euro. And actually it is kind of a food chain magnate thing of being you have to know what you're doing to a degree in the early game. Yeah. Otherwise, if you make, I had about, me and you had a bad first round because we basically tried to play it like a normal game. We bought some shops. We bought some goods. We sold the goods for more money. And that seemed like a decent first round. But actually, that didn't work. While Tom was liquidating you... cameras when you and yeah, I were like, like, hello, madam, have an apple. Yeah. We hadn't clocked that actually even dealing with like jewelry and art, which were the more expensive types of, commodities like we couldn't do that in the first round because they were too expensive for us even to buy Mm -hmm. and then sell and meanwhile tom had just devised a system that meant he was getting it for free and then able to ship it for free regardless of demand which was just hellish and as the game went on we did develop our own little combos on our sheets and actually you know we we had a pretty good go at at getting ahead again and we you know it wasn't like a disastrous loss as it felt like it was going to be early in the game but it was very much a game that was over in the first round because we didn't really know what we were doing in a way which for a game that's like an hour and a half it's you know if you're the kind of gamer who's like You'll know by now if you're nodding and going, yes, yes, this is what I want. Or, oh, gosh, maybe. But, you know, the kind of game that requires knowledge to even play it yeah, uh, it's, beyond it's, the rules. I think it's definitely a, a good example of a game where your first game will be kind of a wash. And I would yeah. even consider like playing half of a game to get everyone used to it and then maybe reset again, go back in. And that's that's pretty yeah. a long evening. Um, I, so I agree. I, I, you have this like reticence to your voice that I've not, that I do share, but I have not put in front of our audience yet. I also had, once I was done playing brick and mortar, I did not feel an inclination to play it. I had actually a really good time with that first game, even though it was wonky. I just, I don't, I think brick and mortar is really good. I just don't think it's good enough for me to sort of like want to acquire it for my collection or play it again rather than like other economic games but what i do want to say about it that's so good is like the the size of the box um it packed this game packs more crunchy decision making and breadth and variety because there's so many different shops and ways to play and combos to find into one of the like it's staggering how small this box is it's like what you say at the end of the the furnace review which we'll talk about later in this podcast like when you shake this box there's almost no sound because the components are so densely packed and like you know we shut up and down getting more and more concerned about the climate crisis and big boxes and single-use plastics i think brick and mortar is a is a really solid example of minimalism within that uh that you know uh problem yeah yeah absolutely and i think like it's is such a strong first entry from a from a publisher yes, you know, for, yes. for a first game in terms of so many things like i think 
the amount of life um, and character it manages to pack into the game, especially with art that is actually, as I say, quite anodyne. But again, I think that's part of it. I think that a game that, that did lavish too much detail and too much character into these cards would only offer you like one vision of, of the world in front yeah, of you, where yeah, actually yeah. keeping it quite vague allows you to um, to kind of view it in a, in a much more broad sense what did you say earlier where you were saying like this is a it looks like a powerpoint from a company which is like don't fall downstairs it's like yeah you could safety presentation yeah it's kind of fitting that brick and mortar looks like like it's got all these smiling humans but they're all kind of lifeless and they have no light behind their eyes and that is actually super fitting for what this game is which is like yeah you're gonna open shops and if you're not careful you're gonna lose everything yeah it's it's it feels to me like a really good um capitalist commercialist game in that regard of it being quite flat and like in the same way that you know the majority of you know you look at your innocent smoothies of the world or whatever i don't know if that's a thing in america but you know these co- the companies that are all the outside very soft and nice and smooth but actually in reality it's like it's all coca-cola it's all like it's all the same big companies behind it it's all actually this big kind of uncaring cruel thing and the fact that like so much of the detail peppered through and so many of the things were just not fair it wasn't <laughs> that kind of like childish well not childish is the wrong word but it wasn't that kind of like naive view on uh big companies bad business bad sort of thing it was a much more considered view on uh, a presentation of things being unfair like the fact that every time we were trying to compete for selling this food to the people and i just kept beating you to the food sales i was gonna say this exact example I had a fancy deli and my food was the same as your food but because it was a slightly fancy deli I just sold it for slightly more and it just meant I kept undercutting Quinn's in a way that he just could not afford to deal with because his my prices could just be higher because it was a bit fancy so it's the little details like that that are just so bang on um yeah in terms of yeah it's even though it's you know got kind of a wonky uh simulation of supply and demand it's close enough to real life that there was some thematic stuff i really liked like tom had the clothing market like locked up for a while and then there was one turn where he just he got distracted he had a new enterprise he was really excited to get it going and he wasn't paying attention and you know me i I was like no i'm gonna jump in here i opened a better clothing shop i pumped the market full of um stock and then lowered my prices and it was just i think it just really nails the contrast between you know the idea of opening a shop and opening a small business is something that in our society is so like homely and pleasant but in reality like one of the most stressed people i've ever met in my life was a spanish guy who opened a greengrocers near me and i would talk to him almost every day and every day he was like he had this he had like the thousand yard stare of a vietnam veteran and he was like i don't know how i'm gonna get through this month like no one's buying you know pears anymore and it's like i'm really sorry and I think that's what it's like to pray brick and mortar. It's like, this is going to be fun. No, it's not. You're going to just really sweat <laughs> over in ev- every pricing of every apple. And, you know, I think for me, the the the, the killer thing with this game of being like, you know, I, I, I like this, but I don't think I'm that into it. And I don't think it, it would be for me um, is actually just the fact that I think the game just goes on for a bit too long. I agree. Yeah. That, like, you know, it's it's especially in a game where you can just be explosively cruel and take all of the money and run away with it in the way that Tom did that's cool and i love that um but you know i'm very fond of food chain magnate which is in a similar space to this in the fact that that's a game where if you turn into a money explosion the game ends you know it's that is a game of domination and there is a mechanic within it which is basically like yeah you've got too much money you've won it's over now ends and in this it felt like we did play out the whole game i think me and you did a pretty honorable job 
of trying to catch up whilst not really working it together that much like kind of occasionally giving each other a slight break here and there because we knew that if we didn't we would just have the worst time <laughs> but yeah. as we predicted in the first round we had lost um and it felt like actually that could have been a game that ended a lot earlier yeah um, it's, it's all down that to loss. that that victory condition you know the fact that you're encouraged to turn your cash into victory points every round means that you have this constant drip of victory points rather than the food chain magnet thing if there's 400 dollars in the game once it's all gone the game's over yeah so i don't know it's a uh, I, I think there's tons to love about it it's definitely if you love this sort of thing and you've got a group that can really quite comfortably be like hey yeah we're gonna set up this big game and play half a game or play a few rounds and then start it again and you love this kind of constant chaos accountancy of, of trying to work out exactly how much money you need to buy exactly what you need next round but then actually somebody else builds an electronic store and suddenly your maths have just gone straight into the bin um <laughs> then it's a delight but it's 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 mean but it's fun mean it's not like horrible mean it's i mean, fun mean it's mean but there's moments of light like you know when you open your art gallery and you sell a painting and you make more money than you've made in the last three months you know yeah it's it's there's there's and then you immediately you immediately spend way more money of that than you should to get more points to try and catch up and then you're straight back into i think that's what i liked about it it, it, it felt but also that's what made it exhausting i think was the fact of exhausting is a good to, word yeah you're constantly like, even when you've had a good month you're then immediately paying as much of that money as you possibly can into points to try and catch up or get ahead and then you're straight back into the zone you were in before of being like oh i just don't have enough money to to, to run my business um i feel like for a game that you and i at the time felt we didn't want to play again because maybe we were so exhausted and burned by tom uh we are having a good time talking about it and we are like, finding I, there's a lot I, to talk about yeah i'm finding myself actually thinking like i would like to play it again knowing how to play it a bit and uh knowing that as as i should already know that tom needs to be taken incredibly seriously um <laughs> I always well, forget because he's got such a, a kind smile. <laughs> uh, in fact, directly after Brick and Mortar, we moved on to the next game we're talking about on this podcast, in which once again you and I tried and failed to take Tom down a peg. Uh, should but we, we talk were so close. We were so close. Uh, should we talk about Rush Out? Let's do it. Do okay. a sting. Right, Rush Out, published by Sit Down Games, no relation to Shut Up and Sit Down, and designed by Thomas Dupont. Uh, this is a game about fantasy adventurers running through a dungeon as monsters get in their way. That sounds pretty generic. Well, let me tell you, this time the four heroes that are in this game are animals. So there's like mm. a turtle, priest, and a sloth warrior. And, you know, I'm cynical, but that does go some way into making it feel vaguely fresh. Um, also, the sorcerer who you're fighting is a minotaur or a bull, I guess, because they're, yeah. When is they're all animals. When is a right? minotaur a bull? Yeah, they're all animals, yeah. Okay, so um, this is an all-versus-one real-time game. So one player around the table is going to be the sorcerer who is trying to stop these heroes from escaping the dungeon as they rush out of the dungeon, hence rush out. And then two to four players are going to be these heroes um, trying to bash monsters as they... Basically, it's a race to see who can get through their deck first. Now, every player, the sorcerer and the heroes, gets a handful of dice. 
And these dice have different symbols on, like fire and swords. And each individual hero has it has like can use wilds as a different symbol. So if you're the warrior, then your wilds count as swords in addition to the swords on the dice. So it's easier for you to roll swords. Um, and in front of you, um, both players, the sorcerer and the heroes, are going to have cards with symbols on. So for the heroes, it might be you know a wall of thorns, which means you're going to need three fire to burn through it. And so as players roll these dice, they're going to be oh that's a fire. I'm going to place the fire on the fire card. And once you've got enough symbols on that card, you whip the card out it's done everyone gets their dice back um but there's some weird decision making especially for the heroes because each hero can only assign their dice to one card so if you Mm. roll a fire and you place that on the vines then you can't roll a sword and place that on the goblins you have to be focusedly working at one thing so there's some kind of group thing as players be like well oh you're working on that i'm going to join you and come work on that but because it's a real-time very very stressful game players might start splitting their attention in a way that is not that efficient um and then okay so the sorcerer however gets more dice so it's easier for the, to fill up cards but they are playing alone um but all of the sorcerer's cards have special effects so the sorcerer is also picking and choosing what kind of horrible stuff they want to sort of uh, inflict on the heroes so by default and you as you play your first few games the sorcerer has cards that can create additional monsters for the hero team to fight through the sorcerer can lock your dice away so it's like oh that player only has two dice now everyone has to like put more symbols on this dice to unlock that dice the sorcerer can push dice back off cards ideally waiting until the heroes have almost finished something then just pushing all the dice off and also most interestingly the sorcerer can move a dragon so there's this big wooden dragon piece and when the sorcerer completes certain cards the dragon piece lumbers forward and steps like a sort of series of stepping stones onto the three cards that the heroes are trying to solve Whatever card the dragon is on, the heroes can't place dice on that card, but also if the dragon makes it all the way to the end, steps on card one, card two, card three, um, then finally onto the hero's deck, which would be step four, the heroes instantly lose. Um, And this whole thing of racing through your deck to see whoever can complete the deck first doesn't matter anymore. So the heroes have an additional space on the board, which is where they can place a bunch of wilds to move the dragon backwards. Um, so that's a basic overview of Rush Out, but what I should also say is this is a campaign game. Um, like Sit Down Games' excellent game Magic Maze, this is a game, a real-time game that starts kind of simple, but then every time you finish playing it, you can add more mechanics, more ideas, more cards, um, as you work your way through the box, which of course makes it also very well set up for expansions, uh, which is what uh, Sit Down Games did with Magic Maze, where if you finish the expansion, then you can buy even more complicated stuff that probably no one will get to, because I don't personally know anyone who finish the campaign of magic maze but that's okay that's fine sometimes the possibility of the thought of a whole campaign worth of games is exciting and you don't actually need to do it because one day that rainy weekend will come it will but also who's gonna play like 14 games of magic maze back to back oh i guarantee that people will and have that people with kids especially like there will be children of a certain age which be like catnip and a great way of keeping them quiet so I'm sure that there'll be at least one parent listening to this nodding away going, oh yes, oh yes. The day we got them to play, the day we got them to play Magic Maze all day, what bliss. Um, (laughs) However, you and I, as two heroes, took on Tom the Sorcerer, and Tom, (sighs) I hate this because Tom's going to be listening to this podcast and so he has to hear me praise him, but Tom's real young, he's real fast, he's real hungry, he's got a lot to prove, and he beat us which was tragic he's for you and like, me come on now he's got he's got all of his neurons in the right places <laughs> um he's you know he's got like supple 
childlike limbs and reactions. Yeah. And also, like, he's still got the capacity to just drink a couple of coffees in an afternoon without becoming some jittery, anxious mess. Yeah. So, you know, he was basically like a, a, a baby on drugs. And how are we supposed to beat that? Eh? I, like, <laughs> well, I tell you, what, it was. Ge- I, I know I joked about this on the day, but it was genuinely the the real victory for me was that when Tom did beat us in a in one, you know the three round game of um, Rush Out we played, there was genuine sweat beading on his forehead by the end, and that was enough <laughs> for me. It's like you know when yeah. fantasy heroes can draw blood from the indestructible villain, and they're like, look, right. look. They can be beaten. That was that was it for me. It's like if we kept playing yeah. Rush Out with Tom, I think you're and my stamina would have won out over his. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially because you know in the first round we got beaten quite badly, and so we really did. Just, oh, you and I activated knuck- after that. Yeah, yeah, we knuckled down, and that's the point where I think we started to to realize that actually, um, there's this is a good little game. Rush Out to be to be quite special. I think in in that space. Um, it's definitely something I'm going to be diving into more. I actually the other day set it up, ready to play, and then realised it was the three players to five players, uh, and it wasn't a two. Pl- and I was like, oh yeah, there isn't a two player mode. It's fine. It was literally that thing of being like, oh no, I forgot to look at the box. Anyway, basically, there is a ton of life within the within the cooperative part of this. I don't know what it's like to be the wizard yet. We don't have Tom here as expert wizard. I'm looking forward to checking it out. The wizard to me feels slightly more like a cerebral role and the fact that you have more dice to be rolling of six yep. dice rather than just four. I think you have and... five rather than three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you have you have more dice that you're rolling and then also you actually have a thing where you need to kind of be looking at the, um, the hero's cards more to actually see what's kind of on those cards because there are symbols on the other side of the table on those cards that allow you to determine what... Um, you can use your wild symbols for at the moment. And again, that was kind of another thing for us in terms of trying to not give too much variety there. If there was like two Oh, I did not think about that at all. Oh, I was on that. Don't worry. I was oh, on that. Oh, wow. Because it, it was like, we cannot have him being able to use a wild for like three Anything. different things yeah, you know, yeah, at yeah. the same time. That's That's too dangerous. So... They have to do a lot more kind of awareness of the uh, the whole board, whereas I think it's safe to say that as the heroes, we were very much just focused on uh, what was in front of us. Yeah, you want to grind like, through all of those symbols, grind through as many dice rolls as possible, get through the cards and get out the dungeon, yeah. And it was the fact that really you would just be calling out things. You'd be calling out like swords, fire, like uh, <laughs> keys, and then, you know, basically just trying to coordinate with people to be doing the same thing at the same time. And when it worked, and you were all just putting things in the right place and sliding things off and putting them into the bin, it was glorious. But it had an element of a, like a dexterity game to it that I wasn't expecting. Often, like fast rolling dice games, they're not really dexterity games, even though you are just constantly using your hands. No, you're rolling dice quickly, but you're also sort of you're making. I it uh, this is weird, right? Because I don't want it to be a criticism that in Rush Out there's not as much thinking as other real time dice games where you roll dice and maybe have to make decisions rush out is you you are rolling these dice constantly like it's a you know each you're doing a best of three rounds thing each round is maybe five minutes you do not stop moving for those five minutes and so out of the Mm -hmm. gate i should say in terms of accessibility if you have any kind of difficulties with manual dexterity then oh my goodness this is not the game for you no um and it you know even we quickly discovered that after rolling the because you only have four dice you know we only had like we had three was it three? Oh no, was oh, it God. four? It was three. No, no, I, I think, think it might right. be three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three. It was three. Oh, that's even worse. 
Sorry, I've misremembered. But we had like, so we hardly have any dice. You're just rolling the same dice again and again and again and again to the point where if you roll the dice of one, them just start spinning around and isn't landing immediately. Then you just like you just pick it up and roll it again because it's like mm-hmm. there's no. I haven't got time to wait for that to like decide what it wants <laughs> to be. Um, but also, I think what was lovely about it is because you're picking up these dice and placing them on these cards. You're placing them on these cards in the shared area where you're trying to clear stuff, and also you're placing your dice on cards in front of other players to try and like remove the curses that have been placed on those characters. You kind of just roll it until you see the symbols that you need put them somewhere and then just keep rolling and forget about your other dice right which meant there was a really nice element in this speed of tidying up in a way of like when you were the person to clear a card you would pull off those dice from that thing and then you could just leave all of the dice there but we found that when we did that we were losing and so what you had to do is you had to literally like slide all of the dice off the card and then sort of like ping them to all the players like ping them over oh to the yeah thing, you, you know? can't just take your own dice part of the game is like yeah passing your friend's dice back to them because in a game where a whole team of people are rolling dice together those dice will get in front of your your co-workers your colleague co-workers in a dungeon what's that <laughs> yeah you're always going to be playing with co-workers <laughs> but no it's uh yeah you, you couldn't you could just leave them there for someone else to collect them but everyone's so focused on what they're doing that that's just not helpful and so it meant that you would just be like kind of pinging dice over like you know clearing uh, dice off and just chucking them in the general direction of the other player and they would just grab them I think when you use phrases like pinging and chucking, you're underselling how cool it is because you can't throw a dice at someone. To pass a dice very quickly in a distance of like a foot and a half to your friend who owns that dice so they can start rolling slide, it again. It, yeah. yeah, it's like a it's like a Wild West bartender slide. You put the dice <laughs> on the table, give it a bit of a bit of oomph, and then it'll slide ideally about a foot and a half towards your friend. Or ideally they will grab it before it stops moving. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of... And that's when I was like, this is a really cool dexterity game. And I, that that's when I really started to appreciate the the joy of having it kind of being slightly mindless in terms of, like, I'm just trying to roll and get swords right now. Um, because, you know, without, not, without having to do any addition or multiplication or looking at checking things all the time, it was just allowing you to just focus on this physicality of roll, 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 grab a dice. The fact that Tom was then occasionally clearing the dice off of the cards... Uh, first few times it was this sort of like ah but usually it was just a case of as soon as he did it you just go okay and you just like swoop and grab them as part of that movement and start rolling them again like straight away like just having this sort of uh churn of of constantly rolling things and then sometimes occasionally rolling the other players dice by accident and being like oh no (laughs) throw that over there and this is why i think this could just be alarmingly good with um with like you know multiple heroes playing with like three or maybe I think four yeah players. if you've got a it, it could be an extremely good five player game maybe uh, just Whereas, being like where's my one. other dice you know <laughs> like oh could, yeah uh, yeah 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 um but there was I, just I thought there was just enough thinking there in terms of having to have awareness of what was going on with other characters in terms of like did you need to roll some hearts and help remove a nasty card um, the classic, the dragon was such a constant presence and a threat in the fact that having that dragon on the card meant you couldn't finish cards, which really wrecked us a few times when we already had like four dice out of five on a card and then suddenly the dragon was on it and we had to then basically decide if we were going to pull all of our dice off of that just so we could move it back again. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a, inter- some of my favorite moments in Rush Out were when you have decisions that are kind of tricky and no time to make them and you have to make them as a group. Like, okay, we've started work on this card that the dragon is now on. Do we want to leave those dice there? Because if we take them off, we'll just have to re-roll them. Or we could start pushing the dragon back now. Like, 
but then yeah. if and I think with four players that becomes more interesting because you can have two players like saving their work while two two other this is all getting super abstract if people haven't played I Russia. know I know instead yeah. I'm gonna talk about uh the first expansion you get after you've done the first scenario so from the second scenario onwards I really really like into in because it sits nicely in this space of forcing players to make tricky decisions on the spur of the moment the hero deck gets all of these gold cards in it and the gold cards are special cards that when they show up in the hero's row of cards that they're trying to defeat, um, the sorcerer can actually place dice on them as well and complete those cards for the heroes. And whoever completes the dice gets gold. And gold can be spent between rounds on items that make you a bit stronger. But this is a best of three game. So I really like that decision of like, okay, well, maybe we let the sorcerer have that gold because I think we'll win this match. And if we win this match, then we don't have to improve ourselves between rounds because we've already got one win in the bag. Like... A nice little economic decision in a game of that's otherwise like real time madcap. I think that is cute, Foxy. I think like it's it. yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I think you know I feel like it actually is one of those games that falls into a kind of slightly odd gap, and the fact that it definitely um, from an outward perspective looks like a very light, simple, fun, like n- not much to it game. And yet that's true, but also it's kind of a really quite thrilling dexterity game with a bunch of like ongoing unlock up like things you unlock as you play it more and do things like not in a kind of campaign like real campaign way but there's clearly it's designed for people who play games a bit more than like you know just once or twice i think it's a really good game for people who happen to play games in bars and i think it's a really good convention game you know if you're at a con and you've got some friends and you're all feeling excited because it's a board game convention and then oh my goodness there's a copy of rush out in the library you're gonna have so much fun for an hour um, but I worry I might have sounded slightly more positive on this than maybe I should have. Uh, so this is a, a mid-podcast turnaround for you, Matt. Here's my problem with Rush Out. Um, and it comes from, yeah, it, well, I mean, maybe it's not so much a surprise because, yeah, it's it's that question of who does it, who's it for and where does it fit in a collection. If you want a real-time dice chucker, although it's a it's very expensive, maybe even overpriced, um, I think Escape the Curse of the Temple, which is in my collection, is I, I do prefer it. It's got all that cooperation and teamwork, but it's more evocative and more interesting. Um, and I think the dice rolling is more interesting. And if you want a, a, a real-time game from the same publisher that I think is better, I do prefer Magic Maze to Rush Out. And, like, neither of those games are doing quite what Rush Out is doing. But for me, I th- I mean, I own Escape the Cast of the Temple and I own Magic Maze. And I would rather play either one of those, depending on what mood I'm in, than Rush Out. That's fair, yeah. I, I think it's it's interesting and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out more because I feel like it's it's a case of how does it play... How does it play with four? How does it play with five? Because I think that's the... Played with three, it was fun. Um, but I feel like it's going to be those higher player counts where it either doesn't live up to that potential or it really does shine. Also, um, how does it play when you've got like all of the mechanics? Because we, we played the first yeah. starter scenario and I think with a, with a group that is having fun and it's introducing more mechanics, the game's getting thicker and thicker and more juicy and more juicy. It could be really, really neat uh, at the end towards the end of the campaign when all of the expansions are in there. Could be, could be. I'm I'm gonna delve in and find out. So that's a that's a, a surprisingly interesting uh, dice rolly game that uh, we qu- like I liked, but maybe the jury's a little out on it. Um, but again, just another very interesting and surprisingly fun thing from Sit Down. Finally, on the YouTube channel recently, we had a video review of Furnace, a small box game 
which actually has delighted a lot of people already. It's a pretty popular, pretty hot little is game. Is it a small box? Is it a small? You wish it was a small well, box. In the video the review, thing, you specifically right? say you wish it came in a smaller box. Well, this is the difficult thing. It is technically a small box, right? It, but it well, could be smaller. Kind of small. Yes, it could be smaller. It could be it's, the size of your fist. I think that's what, you know, the, the thing is, for a game which is basically um, an economic engine factory game, it's most of those game boxes, you, you're going to be looking at something twice the size as a minimum, right? So I think that's where, <laughs> where the small yeah. box comes from. In terms of, like, the experience you're getting is in a comparatively smaller box. But, as I say, and I've seen other people, like, chopping the box in half, and you literally could fit it in something half the size. Um, so again, like I think that's the con- I want the Conditier style thing, please. Let's get these tiny little things again, old school. Anyway, Furnace is a game where you are effectively bidding every round on properties from a selection of different things that are getting drawn out, and you're bidding with capital, right, rather than money, which is a kind of abstraction that doesn't, strictly speaking, make sense. Each player has four discs uh, with a whopping four down to a minuscule one and they kind of stack up nice uh vertically like a kind of uh, a cake or uh, uh, stacks of cheese wheels or uh tower of hanoi whatever you prefer to visualize <laughs> in your head and the way it works is basically in this round you're going to be you have to place all four of these across different things you're going to bid for these things and then the highest bidder for each of these different properties is going to actually own it and get it they're going to put it into their little tableau of things and then you're going to run your little tableau of of, of things and you're going to turn resources into other resources and then eventually hopefully make money now the neat thing about this game really is the fact that as i say it's got very few components the rules are pretty simple but there's just an awful lot of really juicy decision making packed into every element of it and the crucial thing about it basically is the fact that you only have four rounds in the game first round you haven't got anything and last round you want to have nothing but money ideally which means you've got to spin up this crazy multi-economy thing in rounds two and three and then kind of pack it away neatly and turn it all into money and the horrible thing is the fact that the auctions in it don't really make sense <laughs> the, like, the joke i mean people at home who haven't seen matt's furnace review you know certainly it, it's like mandatory that you tune in for the first uh, minute because the opening skit is like it's very good it's very very good use of green screen there's a lot of there's a lot of matt lee's different matt lee's for you too it's enjoy. very rare that we actually manage to do the thing we try and do in shut up sit down of having a joke in it that explains the game and we, you know, <laughs> we, we used to do it a lot we haven't done it for a long time increasingly because it's hard sometimes but anyway this was just too perfect the reality is that you might be specifically bidding on something, but you don't want to win that auction. You just want to get compensation for it because the compensation is like immediate rewards that actually sometimes are just going to be loads better than actually winning the thing. A property might not be something you need, but you might really need those resources right now in order to actually run the rest of your engine. But then you have the lovely element of greed and the fact that if you just put a little one on, then it's very unlikely you're going to win that auction with the lowest bid unless no one else bids on it, which may happen. <laughs> God damn it, Ava. Um, and, but if you put a higher one down, like a three, and then someone else bids a four on it, fantastic. Then it means you're going to get three times that reward, that kind of compensation. And it doesn't make sense, again, the fact that somebody else can already have put down their four disc on a thing, and you can put a three underneath it. Meaning like, yeah, I know you've won that auction. That means I can safely just get three worth of compensation. And then within that, there's other rules, but they're also simple. Like you're not you're not allowed to place two of your discs on one card. You're not allowed to place a number 
disc on a card that already has that number on it, which means there can only be a one, two, three, and a four, all different colors. And that's kind of it. Then you've got like special cards that allow you to basically break all of these rules in different ways by having like a special character that can do the things that you usually can't do, like putting down two of your discs on one thing or putting down a number that's already on a card. And you've got this horrible little puzzle of basically um, trying to trying to build a little economic engine, yes, but also trying to outwit and understand your opponents in a way that often you don't have in these games you know you, you do actually kind of keep an eye on what other people are doing like what resources do they need what what do they need to add to their engine um if i let them win this auction by bidding too is that what they wanted or is exactly that going to annoy them exactly like and you can often you can really see the desperation when, <laughs> when it's like they realize that they're not if no one else bids on this thing they're just going to get something they don't need um because you can if you're not careful just end up having a, a vast quantity of properties that don't actually produce much which is the worst i, I think um, watching your review and watching you play um this game I, I i haven't played it myself yet but what seems really apparent to me from the outside is it just seems to be a game where you're only ever doing two things and they're both fun either you're in this really engaging interesting crunchy auction or you are turning resources into other kinds of resources in a way that is deeply satisfying on the off chance yeah. to listen to this podcast and you've not played a board game give it a shot they're weirdly yeah. fun yeah absolutely and i mean there's, there's some interesting stuff in this i definitely recommend checking out the video if you're interested because there's some there's some funny stuff in terms of like there's some an, an optional rule in it that does fundamentally change the nature of the game in a way that i think is interesting and actually just creates a more malleable design that can kind of fit the type of game you want to play in, a, in quite an interesting way rather than just making it easier or harder um which i think is kind of fascinating and uh yeah it's it's a, it's a pretty hot little box but it could be smaller um so maybe they'll yeah. release a giant expansion to justify the size of the original box i mean there is a neoprene mat the table mat for it which i did get sent but i didn't include in the review because i don't tend to include extra things so when you've got that in the box as well it kind of makes more sense but still just keep it small, please. Tiny keep, box, please. Keep it small, please. Tiny box, please. That is Furnace, a game that I wish I'd played, but did not. Uh, what do you have lined up in the rest of your day, Matt? What's what's happening? What's I am going. I've already. I got up very early this morning to remove the oven from my kitchen. Don't um, put it back, Matt. The, the oven's <laughs> got to be there. It's supposed uh, to be so there I, for a reason. It's how you I'm cook gonna, things. I know. I'm going to put it back. That's that's my plan. I I, I got up really early. <laughs> I've removed the oven. I had a lot of fun doing that. Now I'm going to put it back, right? I'm just going to put it back. So that's mm. my plan. What are you going to do? Oh, I, I, I always do this. I always ask people questions and then I'm just shocked and alarmed when it's uh, turned <laughs> when back they... on me. <laughs> well, allow me to... You know what? You know what, Matt? I've gotten uh, more and more into uh, uh, weightlifting during lockdown. And today is arms day. Let me tell wow. you. Quinn's, after, what, 35 years of suns out, do not take your guns out in the summer of 2022. I think some of my friends here in Brighton, it's going to be a new Quinn's with, with bigger, bulkier arms. The How's alarming gun show of 2022. The middling backyard gun show, which has some guns. They're not very impressive, but they are inarguably guns. Well, that's, that's how they start. That's how they start. Like that, and then we can then... grow the gun show over time and then maybe be shut down by the government. But that's all yeah. That's all to come in my future. So yeah, it's going to be buys, tries, and delts. That's what I'm working on uh, this afternoon while you're putting your Try oven back. before you buy delts. <laughs> that's, someone's got to have made that joke better. You I'm can't sure. be the first person who's thought of that. I hope not. That Try would before be sad. you buy. 
That'd be well, a disappointment uh, to human you race. have fun lifting metal pointlessly, and I'll have fun lifting metal pointlessly. Way. Um, uh, nice. Okay. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. I think we'll be back next time with maybe a live show from PAX Unplugged. It's going to have wild energy. I've heard some people don't like live episodes of podcasts and they skip them, and that's dumb because the best episodes of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast are unquestionably the live ones. <laughs> but I, sometimes, I guess, you've got to be there. Which is you reckon, do you reckon thing. that's what it is? Do you reckon? And also, the audio quality is usually less good, but that's because you can't control it because you're in a room full of people. But and the, that's not the, how the it, canned yeah. laughter tells you when to laugh, and that makes you want to laugh. It's parasympathetic behaviour. Hey, know. horses for courses. Horses okay. for courses. Okay. And uh, yeah, see you then. See Bye. you then, maybe. Bye.